Hi, and welcome to episode number 24 of the CryptoChip Podcast, your inside resource for the latest blockchain and crypto trends. I'm your host, the CryptoChip, Rachel Wolfson. Today, I'm interviewing Marie Week, General Manager of IBM Blockchain. In this interview, Marie explains the ins and outs of enterprise blockchain. Marie mentions that the best use cases for enterprise blockchain focus on data sharing, noting that data being immutable across a blockchain network makes this a great solution for provenance tracking, handling documents across different entities, and for eliminating third-party intermediaries that are inefficient. She also explains specific use cases such as the IBM Food Trust Network and Verified Me. Marie also touches on the future of enterprise blockchain and what trends she expects to see next. Without further ado, let's get right to my interview with Marie. Enjoy. Okay, so Dan here with Marie Week. She's the general manager of IBM Blockchain. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of IBM Blockchain. I think that you guys are pioneering the enterprise blockchain space. So just speaking with you today is super exciting. Awesome. And delighted to be out here in California where there's a lot going on. So it's been great. Yeah. So Marie, maybe tell our listeners um, your role at IBM, what that actually means. And uh, we'll get started with that. Yeah. I lead blockchain for IBM. So we um, started on blockchain probably about five years ago. Um, and did a bunch of work in the open source community and internally to really see where we thought it could make a difference. Uh, We did projects with our global financing team. We did some projects with our supply chain team. And we found that there really was a big difference between most people think of blockchain with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and what you really could do with a permission blockchain where people know who they are engaging with and really get at enterprise use cases. Um, so about two and a half years ago, we formed a division. Um, we have a strategy that is really a full stack approach. We work on open source. We take that open source and we have a cloud platform for people to develop blockchain solutions. We have a services team and we have some solutions ourselves that keep informing how we do this better, food trust, trade lens, other things like that. So there's now about 1,500 people around the world working on blockchain. We've done over 500 projects so far, and about 100 of them are in production now. So definitely making an impact on how to change the way people collaborate. Right, yeah. Before we talk about the use cases, can you explain what enterprise blockchain means? Because I think there's definitely confusion still, like, does it just mean permission networks or, you know? I mean, typically what we see in enterprise blockchain is it is a permission network because most enterprises want to know who they're doing dealing doing business with. And many enterprise use cases are regulated, which makes that a real requirement. You know, healthcare, finance, those are usually very much a requirement. Most of the use cases are B2B related as opposed to consumer facing as a result as well. But they're all permissioned. They are all typically following what we have described as our blockchain principles, you know, that they are open, that people get to control who gets access to their data, and that they are governed with a common governance model where the people in that network get to decide. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we see this fitting. So very much permissioned open source and more B2B focused. I see. So when you say it's permissioned but open network, you just mean by that, that 
you know, there's still say in that network within exactly. the people that are part of that. Network. I mean, the most important thing that I can say is permission doesn't mean private. It just means that I know who you are. It means you can join the network as long as you agree to the smart contract and trust model that that network has decided. And, you know, typically that means it's an open process. Uh, there are some enterprise networks that do ask for, you know, a voting policy, like, is it a majority vote that new people will join or is it just freely open? And there are a number of vehicles now where you can find out, you know, it, it takes a lot to build a network. And I certainly recommend that people join existing networks if there are folks out there that are working on similar projects, because the network effect really makes the value much greater. You know, so there are um, elements like Hesera has a, a blockchain registry of enterprise blockchains, doesn't matter which DLT, you know, which distributed ledger, but all the ones that are out there, as well as a link for how you can get more information on whether you want to join. Right. Yeah. And I forget who said it, but someone said this is a we technology versus a me technology. Absolutely. So the more people involved in the network, the better it works. Exactly. Met Metcalf's law applies, you know, that you really see more benefit exponentially with the size of the network and the amount of data. So you really want to get to a tipping point where whatever use case you're working on, you have at least 50% of of that data, of those participants. And, you know, then there are real opportunities for scale. Right. And so in terms of best use cases for blockchain, because blockchain isn't suitable for every, um, you know, problem in this world. Absolutely. Uh, what are the best <laughs> use cases? Um, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, blockchain is a distributed database. It happens to have some unique properties, but it's all about sharing data. And I see three primary uh, use cases. One is this particular distributed database happens to have this wonderful property called immutability that means you're always recording every change to the data, which gives you a perfect vehicle for provenance, for where did this come from and is it really what I thought it was? So whether that's tracing the source of where my lettuce was grown or is this really a branded luxury handbag or is this really an original equipment part that I can actually establish that provenance of this is what I think it is. Um, so that's one use case, you know, like food trust that really gets at the immutability. The other use case is when I really want to share a lot of digital documents. So, you know, TradeLens is a, a global shipping network use case. And, you know, we did studies on, you know, a container of flowers going from Rotterdam, you know, from Mombasa to Rotterdam that had over 200 documents, you know, handling all those documents and sharing it with all the people that need to see it, the shippers, the customs, the port authorities, the handlers, you know, the in, inbounds um, transit logistics is a lot of work. And if you can have everybody have access to it simultaneously with a known document, that's a great use case. And the last one is, you know, all of our current internet models are really point to point communications. And that means, you know, whether it's your social network or your marketplace, somebody is in the middle acting as the broker or the middleman. If that party is efficient and trusted, 
great. You don't need blockchain. But if you see inefficiencies or cost inequities or imbalanced trade in some of those kinds of processes, and you can create a new trust model where there isn't one today, that's a great opportunity for, for blockchain and creating a new distributed network. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, in my opinion, it's all about trust and creating that trust between businesses and even with consumers. Correct. Um, so let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite use cases, the IBM Food Trust Network. Explain how that works, explain who's a part of the network, and explain also how consumers benefit from it from it as well as businesses do. Yeah, and I really, I, I talked about enterprise blockchains being mostly B2B, but the downstream benefits are, are really evident in something like Food Trust. You know, so we started this effort with Walmart. And they came to us as part of their food safety initiative that really reflects how do you do better at the Food Modernization Act that is actually a law in the United States since 2011, but really hard to implement. And they said, can you help us improve how we can actually do a recall? Because one in 10 people every year have a foodborne illness. You know, how do I do a recall and just pinpoint the produce that's affected, not throw out every head of lettuce, um, you know, that, that may be out in the market. And um, we did a lot of work with blockchain of whether that could be appropriate and um, wound up being able to do a traceback test comparing their current systems with blockchain. And instead of taking over six days, it took about two seconds to trace to the source, you know, just because of all the different actors and players and doing it digitally and recording it on a blockchain. So that motivated them to say, hey, you know, last year there were over 400 um, food recalls in the United States alone. And the majority were actually related to leafy greens. So they're asking all their leafy green providers to get on the blockchain in order to build out that ecosystem and make food safer. But once you now have that data, what else could you do? And, and now it's not just Walmart and their suppliers. We have almost 200 different participants, um, largely North America and Europe. Um, Carrefour, as an example, is a, a large retailer in Europe that, that is working with Food Trust. And they're providing access via an app on your mobile device to their consumers for different things, like they have their own private label chicken. And why should I buy the private label chicken from Carrefour? Well, they've gone and worked with their farmers and have actually you know, established standards for provenance and for sustainably grown raised chickens. And they provide a traceback so that you can see on your smartphone who raised this chicken. How were they taken care of? What was the sustainability of the farm? And they've seen a jump in their sales of produce and the the clients feel much more trusted back to your point of, you know, I know what I'm buying and that it adheres to the values and the trust model that I want with the relation of what I buy, what I eat. You know, last year in the United States, more organic food was sold than was grown, you know, which says that there are folks out there that are you know, marketing something as organic that really isn't. And, you know, how do you actually find that 
prove that out and make that part of your value proposition in terms of you as a consumer. So um, they've done this with Nestle has has done work on traceability for Gerber baby food, uh, for muslim potatoes to see exactly which provinces your potatoes are coming from. You know, and we have some new efforts. Uh, we recently announced work with Sukafina that is creating a coffee network for growers and roasters um, with a Farmer Connect app. So I can go directly back to the source. And ultimately, you know, could you tip your farmer? You, you know, a lot of people tip their barista right now. Um, but the average farmer gets one cent out of a cup of coffee. You know, what could you do to impact their lifestyle by, you know, making the ecosystem much more connected? Right. And that's interesting. And I wasn't actually aware of that use case up until now. When you say tip your farmer, does that mean tipping them in some sort of a cryptocurrency or because I know or when I think of enterprise blockchain, I don't think of cryptocurrency, which is you know a really big point that we should be making here. But for a solution like that, do you tip the farmer in a cryptocurrency or is it fiat? And it really um, they're still evolving their own model, but the end payment to the farmer will be in a local currency. And do you use traditional mechanisms to do that or do you use tokens? Um so while we, you know, while we really have not been engaged from a direct cryptocurrency model, we do think there's real value to digital asset represented tokens. So, you know, a great example is a loyalty point. You are expressing value in, you know, a digital means for some good or service that you could get. So, we're a participant of the token taxonomy framework, which is a joint effort across Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, ourselves, a bunch of folks from Hyperledger to really say, if you can create a, an asset backed token, can you exchange value between some of these networks? Can I do payments on delivery of my lettuce or my coffee beans? Can I tip uh, a participant in the network? So it doesn't necessarily mean that you are you know, going to use a cryptocurrency, but those models can exist that introduce new business opportunities. Right. Um, another very different but great example is, you know, we've been doing work with um, the Plastic Bank, which is a company focused on eliminating ocean-borne plastic waste. Um, there are estimates that by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. Um, which is, you know, a scary preposition. So what can you do to eliminate it at the source before it gets into, you know, into the ocean, into the water supply system? And they've been working in Haiti and the Philippines and a bunch of other places to get at recycling, which also can help contribute you know, to the the underprivileged in those communities as well. And they've created a social plastic. It's a token, you know, again, think of it as a loyalty um, model where instead of bringing back the plastic bottles or plastic bags or other waste, plastic waste and getting money. And, you know, in their own studies, a lot of the people who do that are children or women who then get mugged once they've 
brought back the goods and it stops the cycle because they don't want to, you know, put in that effort and then lose the, lose the money anyway. So they've created a token that then people can redeem at these plastic banks where they have brought back their recycling for medical care or cell phone minutes or charging stations or milk or education credits. So again, it's not really, you know, it's it's not a cryptocurrency, but they're basically providing a value exchange mechanism between the asset, which is plastic in this case, and the valued services that this particular community wants. And they're working with enterprise companies like, you know, like Henkel that are actually helping provide some of the subsidy on the plastic to make it a valuable proposition to the people that are collectors. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk about another interesting use case that I think is a really good application of blockchain, and that's WeTrade, because that focuses on digital identity, which I think blockchain can really revolutionize that space. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that's in production already. Correct. Okay. And and WeTrade um, is a a network of a number of banks in Europe um, that are focusing on trade finance. So it's less of a network actually on identity per se, but more on providing the trusted verification of financing of goods. In many cases, when you're um, when you're a small business operator and now want to finance that next crop or that's next set of goods that you're manufacturing, you get an order from a large company, you can take that order and get financing for, you know, your raw materials or for your seeds or for, you know, whatever you need. But there's a lot of opportunity for risk and error And I could take that same order, that same invoice, and bring it to multiple banks to get financing, which then, you know, increases the risk that those banks are carrying and, you know, the the rate at which, you know, other people are going to get access. So they really are collaborating across this network and sharing the information and documents that are necessary in order to underwrite the financing and loans. And in the process, they obviously need to know who the participants are. So there's an identity element that comes in as part of, you know, being a member of that network and ensuring that we really are, you know, factoring this once and getting faster access to a number of participants, you know, so that, you know, you're getting more efficiency in the market as well. Um, But yes, that's been in production now for a while and um, is reaching out to a number of small and medium businesses in providing that kind of trade finance. And it's actually grown from its initial members. The Batavia Network, which was another trade finance network, decided to join forces essentially um, with WeTrade, you know, and now increase, again, the whole notion of increasing the size and scope of the network gives it greater value and, you know, more impact. Right. Yeah. And I think what's also interesting, someone else from IBM Blockchain told me this with WeTrade, when you, you know, if you have a digital identity, for instance, if I go to the airport, they need to see this, that and that stuff that they don't really need to even see, but they ask for it anyways. So with a solution like WeTrade, when you present your digital identity, it only has the information that needs to be known by that party. It doesn't have your 
social security number involved or, you know, other. And another interesting use case that really is getting at that is Secure Key in Canada. Um, So they are working with a a number of the major banks in Canada um, and the the local telco provider and some of the local government provinces um, to create truly an identity network that is focused on, you know, you know, the, the, the normal example is, you know, if, if, how do I prove that I'm over 21 in order to be able to order a drink today, I give my driver's license that has all kinds of information. My address, it doesn't, it it has my birthday. You don't need my birthday. You just need to know, am I older than, you know, the year to be older than 21. So how do you have protected information where only the information I do need is actually provided. And, you know, the same in a hotel, you check in, I need to, you know, see your driver's license with your um, identity. There is more there than is needed for the transaction. And they're really letting the consumer choose based on who they have a trusted relationship with. You know, I go to this particular bank, so therefore that's where I'm going to get keep my digital identity. And it's triple blind. And only when I have granted permission to let Rogers Telecommunication, because I want to get a new phone or I want to add, you know, my daughter to the plan, um, that only when I say yes and have accepted do I give the information that they need in order to verify my credentials. So... We're doing a lot of work. The Sovereign um, Foundation, Sovereign.org, as well as SecureKey and the DID standards and Hyperledger Indy to create a real network of verifiers and a set of standard information about identity. And that then would say it's easier for me once I'm a known actor to join another network and get benefits you know, for another uh, set of activities. Like I want to not just get trade finance, but then I want to ship those goods using trade lens and I want to connect it if they're potatoes, you know, that are going to uh, Carrefour on the food trust network, that same identity model can be used over and over again to speed onboarding. Right. But I think what really needs to happen in order for that to take place is interoperability, right? Correct. Blockchains need to be able to actually talk and work with each other. What are your thoughts on that and how can we overcome that challenge? I'm, I'm sure IBM Blockchain is thinking about brilliant ways on overcoming and making that possible. And, you know, there there are elements like having common identity that make that a standard model for how I can join. That helps. But the common tokens, if we're actually transferring value across that, having you know, a common token framework will also help. A lot of it comes down to basics, though, in terms of we're providing open APIs to the data layer in all of our platforms. That, by definition, means you can call that information for services. You may not get all of the benefits of being a participant in the blockchain, you know, in terms of the provenance of goods on that particular network, but there's an awful lot you can do to expand the ecosystem and to connect the dots on the kinds of things we're talking about because they're not transactions they're separate transactions. So the data can be used in common across multiple networks for their own smart contracts. Right. Yeah. What are the other challenges besides interoperability that you think, I mean, you know, blockchain seems like the perfect solution for supply chain management and financial use cases. 
but not everybody is doing that. It's actually being adopted very slowly. Yep. So I want to know your thoughts on why that's the case. And besides interoperability, what other challenges need to be overcome to ensure widespread adoption? So I think the biggest issue is not technology at all. You know, like we said, you need to get to a tipping point of the data and the participants to make the network really have value. And that means you have to get typically competitors to work together on a common cause and the governance models, the data access rights, the privacy models for those networks are the things that take a lot of time. And, you know, the more production networks there are out there, the more benefit that we are seeing to bake right back into our platform and into the standards. We've come out with a, you know, a handbook for founders of networks. Um, There are best practices and there's code that help accelerate that so that, you know, the models that worked in other networks can now be repeated. But I think that's the single biggest piece that is slowing down adoption. Once you get a critical mass, though, then you really get the flywheel going. Other areas that I think there's been a lot of discussion about performance. Are we able to hit the volumes of a really global trade network or global food? And, you know, we have not seen performance be the issue. You know, most people are comparing to Bitcoin or other you know, mind networks that because they don't have identity, they need mining for verification. We don't have that challenge. So the performance hasn't been a big issue, but we're continually working to make it faster and better. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, thousands of transactions a second at this point. It's not the gate to where we see the challenge at the moment. The other big thing is just the data requirements. Um, Because it's immutable, because you're storing all of this data and keeping it over time, there's a lot of there's a lot of work going on on how do you actually manage that data volume, and especially with an immutable database. So depending on what the life cycle is of the data you're storing, there are techniques that we're working on to prune your chain. You know, let's cut it off and create a new genesis block you know, based on dates in the middle of last year, if none of your transactions are going to take more than, you know, six months and you can still get at them, you can still bring them back from an archive, but, you know, you can really have a smaller data set that you're operating on at any given point for time and cost. Another thing that people have talked a lot about is cryptography and our quantum computers, you know, we've heard a lot of news recently about uh, advances in the quantum space. Is that going to hack RSA encryption? And, you know, we do think it is possible, but um, it's still a ways out before that will happen. And we're working on a lot of techniques to actually use quantum to address that challenge of creating quantum safe cryptography. There's a particular mechanism that is lattice cryptography where you basically hide the key in n-dimensional space, you know, and a quantum computer can do that. So, you know, the odds of being able to find the key in, you know, in n-space now makes this far more secure. So there's a number of different techniques and research, whether it's on performance, whether it's on data, whether it's on the encryption, and even 
the trust models, the different consensus algorithms that are advancing. But I don't think any of them are really gating progress right now. I think it's more, you know, the team sport that is blockchain and getting people to agree. <laughs> right. Yeah. Culture is important because, you know, I think it's it's frightening for some people to say, oh, we're going to be on the same network as our competitor. Right. And so, yeah, culture is, is very important and just getting that mindset. And then you can start tackling the other challenges. Exactly. Um, so thoughts for the future. I know we're hearing a lot of talk now about blockchain in combination with IoT and blockchain in combination with AI. AI. What are your thoughts on that? I, we're already seeing it. There are a lot of use cases where we're seeing that in combination. And, you know, to be candid, any blockchain solution or network, even the ones that are in production, are typically about a third blockchain you know, there's a mobile front end for people to manage their data. There's back end data stores. There's process transformation. Um, so, you know, it's a misnomer to think it's all just blockchain. And now add on, you know, in food trust as a very good example, we're really focusing on freshness. You know, how do you ensure um that the food that you are eating is fresh and has been preserved at the right temperature and improve its shelf life and um, that it's safe to eat. So that typically involves an IoT sensor for temperature control and, you know, responsiveness in a certain range. And, you know, depending on the produce, you can really expand by a week or more the freshness date of a, a product if it's temperature controlled appropriately. So real use case example for IoT. AI, you know, before you put something on an immutable database, you would like to make sure it's actually a valid piece of data. So particularly for things that are contractually or regulatory defined, how about creating a bot for that regulation that actually filters and examines the data before you post it to the blockchain so only compliant data is posted? You know, as an example, we did work um, with Everledger on diamond provenance who was trying to adhere to the Kimberly Certificate Act that says, you know, that you are, are not, you know, you're not dealing with, you know, blood diamonds and uh, other things like that. And it's a, you know, 18, 20 page set of regulations you can create, which we did with Watson, a set of bots that imply all the meat, the, the main criteria for that certificate. And you can actually test it before you put the diamond on the blockchain. And when you do it there, you know, right at the source, at the mine, you can find it's usually not that it's that this is a non-compliant diamond, but that you didn't have the right information to prove it. And if you find it at the mine, your odds of being able to now prove that it's Kimberly certified and therefore have, you know, a higher price for this diamond is far greater. So there's multiple benefits of how do you how do you make sure that this is KYC, you know, in terms of a financial transaction or, you know, adheres to a certain set of regulatory requirements. There's different document requirements in different ports around the world. You can do that with AI in conjunction with these networks and really speed up the uh, transaction. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that's actually new to me. So learn something new. Final thoughts before we 
in the interview today? Anything that you want our listeners to know? I, I mean, I think, you know, again, there's been a lot of misinformation about blockchain or confusion just about what it does. And I had a partner tell me that, you know, you can't get fit by reading about exercise, which I thought was a really great, you know, analogy. You can't really understand a distributed network and the dynamics of a community model without actually getting in and trying it. You know, so I would just urge all of your listeners to, you know, there are hundreds of use cases that are out there right now. You know, find one if you haven't engaged yet that you know exists in your space industry domain and just try it. You'll learn much more by doing it and by seeing the involvement. And it doesn't mean you can't back out if you find you learned something that you weren't expecting, but it's the best way to engage and to learn about it and kind of bust the myths that are uh, existing around blockchain. Yeah, well, that's great. And, you know, as a consumer, I'm a big believer in blockchain just because like the car, for example, you mentioned, I can't wait until I can go into Whole Foods with, with an app and scan, you know, the lettuce that I'm going to buy and see exactly where it came, came from. from. So it, it, it benefits both businesses and consumers. Exactly. So that's, it's, it's amazing. Blockchain is amazing. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find further information in the show notes to learn more about Marie and IBM blockchain. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Crypto Chick podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, if you have time, please leave me a review. I enjoy hearing your feedback. You can also reach out to me on Twitter at RachelWolf00, on LinkedIn, or at Instagram at Blockchain and Bikinis. Thanks for listening. See you guys next time.